Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Today, uh, as, as my lovely wife just read, we're going over John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Um, in traditional church, today is referred to as Second Easter. Um, Second Easter, this, this passage is about what happened the evening of that first Easter uh, 2,000 years ago. And our text starts at that night. So this is the second week, but, but we're, we're st- things are still happening on that very first Sunday night. And it is a description of a world-changing event, right? The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the single most important event to happen in the history of mankind. But today, we talk a bit about Thomas. And, 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 and this was a life-changing event, this, this one evening in Thomas's life. And as I, was, as I was preparing, I was thinking about life-changing events. And we t- when I think about those things, we tend to think of maybe over-spiritualize them. We think about the time that we started to follow Christ. We think about uh, our weddings. We think about things like that. But sometimes I'm struck by the little things that change our lives, the things that at the time that we think are, are in the complete secular world, because we know that God controls everything in our lives. But sometimes little things happen that make a giant difference. And I, and I thought, it just struck me as I was getting ready, one of those little things. And Josh, my, my first slide, if it works, I, I think it's a, a terrible, grainy picture. Is it coming up? But, yeah, it's, it's hard to see. But it looks better in a computer. That is, that is Pigman's Barbecue. And 30 years ago, Pigman's Barbecue changed my life. Um, I was on vacation in the Outer Banks. I was with some other guys, and we were going down the road, and one of the guys said, hey, I've heard of that place. We should get lunch there. And this was 30 years ago, so we're talking like the 1990s, early 1990s, and pulled pork didn't mean anything in the state of Ohio. And barbecue was a red processed sauce that was like ketchup that my mom put on terrible dried-out chicken. And we went in there, and I had something I never had before, and we went back there multiple times. I think we had every lunch almost that week at Pigman's Barbecue. Ten years later, when Beth and I were looking at where we were going to go for my emergency medicine training, North Carolina was the only place, right? I, I, just to be nice to my parents and Beth's parents, I interviewed in Ohio a couple places, threw a bone to my mom's family, interviewed in Kentucky, uh, went down to South Carolina because I thought maybe, you know, maybe that mustard-based sauce would work, but I knew all along that we were going to North Carolina. And flash forward, you know, here we are. Ten years after that, we, we go to North Carolina. Ten years after that, you know, Hayes and Eli were born, whatever, blah, blah, blah. They were born in North Carolina. We're back in the Outer Banks on vacation, and Beth is more pregnant than what most women would comfortably travel at, and she wakes me up one morning while we're down there, and uh, she said, I think it's the time. You know, I, I thought I had bad seafood last night, and I've been cramping all night, but uh, we got to go. So we knew, we knew where the local hospital was, and we drove to the Outer Banks Hospital there in Nags Head, and Henry was born within a couple hours. And in fact, Henry is named Henry Orville Johnson, partly because the Orville and Wilbur Wright monument was right outside our window. But that night, 
Beth and Henry, of course, they were in the hospital, and they weren't having dinner with us. They were having whatever hospital food. They, well, Henry wasn't. Henry was having milk. But uh, <laughs> Beth was having whatever they were serving, and the older boys and I had to figure out what we were going to do. And we went to Pigman's Barbecue because we were going to close the barbecue circle of life that night. And, and, and that, that just proved it right there. It, like, sealed the deal. But that was, for me, that was a life-changing event. It was probably not terribly spiritual. John 20, though, back to that, it starts, the, the chapter John 20 starts with the first Easter morning, right? Mary Magdalene, she goes to Jesus' tomb, and she finds it empty. And that, we celebrated this last week. She ran, and she told Peter and John, and they raced to the tomb to see for themselves. And then Mary goes back to the tomb, and she finds Jesus there. She encounters Christ herself, even though she didn't recognize him initially. If you look in the book of Luke, then chapter 24, the narrative that day continues and it continues in a way that John doesn't record it, but in Luke, there was this, the road to Emmaus, where Cleophas and another disciple, they met Christ on the way, and they traveled with him. Show of hands, anybody else here got an uncle named Cleophas? You got an uncle Cleophas? Yeah, I didn't think so. We, I had an uncle Cleophas, but we called him Oki, because apparently Cleophas was too weird of a name. So we move on, though, that night, and this is where we start up, right? Chapter 20, verse 19. And I'll read it again, but it won't, be as, it won't sound as good as when my wife read it. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. All right, so they were together that first night, most of them. We'll talk about that later, but the doors were locked. Because they were afraid. They were afraid of, they were afraid of the leaders of, uh, of the Jewish church. Christ had been crucified, and that night when, when he'd been crucified, everybody fled. Everybody left. And now they just learned. They just learned that his body was gone, and, and, and things were happening. You know, the, the place was, there was a commotion. And I try to, I try to put myself there. Um, if you just, just try to put yourself there in that moment, you know, you can see all of this excitement, right? You, you, uh, you know that the powers that be, they want to extinguish this, they want to snuff it out, and now you find out that Jesus' body is missing, and, and you think he's arisen because he told you that he was going to rise, but you haven't seen him yet. And you know that the authorities are going to blame you. You know they're going to blame his followers. They're going to say that they stole his body. It was like an electric atmosphere. You had to be terrified, and then he just shows up. He just shows up in this locked room, and the first thing he says is, peace be with you. But peace had to be like the, the farthest thing from those people in that room that night, right? And then he shows you his wounds. He proves who he was. He calms the storm, you know, like he did in the boat when he calmed the, the waves and the wind. And you have peace. Now, now you do have peace because you have peace that comes because all your questions have been answered, right? His body wasn't stolen and this is no hoax. Christ is risen. And if Christ is risen then you know that Christ is who he said he was, that Christ is the Son of God. And now you have peace because you know that ultimate power rests with this man. And you can unlock the door to the room because in 1 John 4, 4, it says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's proof and that's peace. And then he, he, showed, them, he showed them his hands and his side where he was speared. And, and I got to say, like, I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I have, I have been an emergency room physician for 19 years, and I can tell you my experience with the victims of crucifixion is pretty sparse. I don't know what it's supposed to look like. I do know that as Christ, 
He had every ability to completely heal those scars in a second. But he showed up with the scars showing. And I don't know. Um, I don't know if that was because he wanted to prove that he was Christ, or I don't know if that is because he wanted to eternally remind us of what he had sacrificed and what he had suffered for us. We move on to verses 21 through 22. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. This begins the mission. This begins the mission given to the disciples at that time as well as those of us today. He breathed on them. And his mission was, I am sending you. Right? The idea of he breathed on them, it makes us Right now, I have to be honest, it's a little bit uncomfortable. I remember two months ago, I was listening to a patient's lungs, and I was wearing my mask, but I felt his breath hit me on the side of the face, and it was the first time in two years that I felt breath on my face that didn't belong to a member of my family. The only perk that I got out of the COVID pandemic was that I did not have to deal with bad breath from a stranger. The only bad breath I smelled was Henry's. He can't blame him that. It's hereditary. Um, But I won't say where it came from. Um, But that was a weird feeling, right? We're almost phobic of breath today, but breath is a symbol of life. In Genesis 2-7, it says, And the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. God breathed life into Adam And now Jesus is breathing new life into the apostles. And that new life is with the Holy Spirit. Notice he gives them an assignment. He gives them a job, right? He says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And what are are they being sent to do? Jesus back in Matthew 28, verse 19, answers that question with saying, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is sending him. He is sending us to grow his, his kingdom. This group of uneducated outcasts, this group of fishermen from the backwoods, these people who were so afraid at that time that they were in a locked room, Jesus is sending them out. How could these people, these guys who are, again, who locked themselves in a room that first Easter night, how could they be so successful at spreading the gospel that 2,000 years later, it got me to put on a shirt with buttons and show up in a part of the globe they didn't even know existed at the time to meet in Jesus Christ's name. And the answer is in the breath. Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave them a job, but he gave them the tool, the means to do that job. If I tell one of my sons to change a light bulb and I don't give him a ladder, he can't do it, right? I, we've all been given jobs we can't do before. When I was in high school, I wrestled, and I know that you're all stunned that I was not a basketball player, but I wrestled because it's the official sport of the short guy. And I had never wrestled before my freshman year. We didn't have any wrestling in middle school, we didn't have an elementary school, so my, my freshman year was my introduction to wrestling. And, um, and I was surprised, I was surprised that you couldn't, I was a twin, so when I wrestled, there was usually kicking and biting, and I was surprised you couldn't do those things. And, because of, uh, because of the size of our school, I was, I was on the varsity team. It had nothing to do with my skill because I was a terrible wrestler. And the first wrestling match was an assembly, meaning the entire school came to the gym, and they, they were there for that. And I, uh, I remember I was, on the, I was on the mat facing this guy thinking, this guy knows what he's doing. And I didn't. And somehow, 
Somehow I made it last just long enough that it looked like I'd done this before, but I was inevitably being pinned. And just as he was trying to hold me down, above all the other screaming, I heard my friend Jenny Wallace scream, Nate Johnson, get up! Get up, Nate Johnson! I was like, that's a great idea, Jenny. Her cries had no power behind them because I literally lifted my neck for a second and I was like, well, this is pointless. And, and it, was, it was over. But Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. He gave, us, he gave us the means to spread his word with that breath. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is... This is this is my least favorite verse I have ever had to preach on because on the face of it, with no knowledge of Scripture, it sounds like Jesus said to the disciples that they have the power to forgive sins and like they have the power to condemn. But that's just not what's being said. And if, you know, with any knowledge of Scripture, we know that they did not, that we as human beings do not have the power to forgive sins. If we look in the Scriptures in Acts 10, 43, Peter is speaking, Peter Peter writes to him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then Isaiah 43, 25 writes, the Lord says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Clearly, God forgives sins. Man has no power to forgive sins. And then if we take a look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, um, it, it writes, it reads, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crown, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this, right? This was an argument engineered or designed by God to prove that Jesus is God. And the argument goes like this. Only God can forgive sins. And the Pharisees at the time knew that. They knew that only God could forgive sins. Jesus can forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. And, and just in case you doubt, here's material proof that Jesus is who he says he is. He heals the man. So if only God or Jesus is God can forgive sins, then why would Jesus tell the gathered disciples, if you forgive someone's sins, their sins are forgiven? And, and I think the answer goes back to verse 21, when, when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The disciples and Christians today are sent out to spread the gospel. That is the Great Commission. We are sent to grow the kingdom of God. Jesus, 
Jesus was sent here by God his Father, and in turn, he is sending us out. We are to preach in Jesus' name, just like Peter said, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The disciples could not on their own forgive sins. Uh, They also couldn't condemn people, but they could, and they were, and we are, sent to spread the gospel, that those who receive it would have forgiveness of sins. And again, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit to make that possible. We aren't, and they aren't forgiving sins or condemning. It is simply our message that is. And now we move on to Thomas. Uh, we go through verses 24 through 25. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hands into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas wasn't there the first night, and we'll get into that later. But uh, the, the, it goes on just a bit. Uh, what we know about Thomas, we know Thomas, Thomas had two nicknames. Um, Thomas's nickname, the first was the twin. Uh, Thomas itself means twin, but then they, the text mentions Didymus. That was his Greek name. That also means twin. And we don't know. Nowhere in the Bible does it record why Thomas was called a twin. I'm a twin. If you don't know, I'm an identical twin. And so I've always kind of been interested why Thomas was, was called a twin. Some think that maybe Thomas was, was a twin, and so it'd be a natural nickname. Some think that one of the other disciples possibly was Thomas's twin. Um, others have thought that maybe Thomas just looked a lot like Jesus, and, and so they jokingly called him the twin. I've heard some pastors say, well, you know, who was Thomas's twin? It's, it's you and me, right? Because we're doubters just like Thomas. Because that's his other nickname, is Doubting Thomas. And Doubting Thomas, that's probably the name that has stuck with him the most over the years. I think it's somewhat derogatory, um, but it's still what we know him about. We, you know, today we still say, don't be a Doubting Thomas at times. But before this night, there wasn't really great biblical evidence for, for Thomas doubting, for why Thomas would be called a doubter. Uh, if we look back at what the Bible says about Thomas before this night, uh, if you look back at John chapter 11, verse 16, in this passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples about Lazarus. And if you remember, Jesus was told that Lazarus, his friend, was sick. And Lazarus' sisters were Mary and Martha, and they lived in Judea. And just before this, this area, just before this time, uh, Jesus had been in Judea, and the Jews there had tried to kill him. They tried to stone him. And so at the time, he was, he was pretty much laying low outside of Judea. And uh, he finds out that Lazarus is sick, and he tells the disciples, we're, we're going to go there. I'm going to go there and see Lazarus. And the disciples argued with him. They said, they, they just try to kill you there. They'll, they'll, they'll try to kill you again. And all the disciples argued, except Thomas. In verse 16, Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. That doesn't sound very doubting to me, right? That was a great, it was like a John Wayne statement. That was, that was Thomas saying, meh. If we die, at least we die for a good reason. Thomas seems like a pretty cool guy. Thomas, I would like to have Thomas on my team. I would like to have Thomas in the ER because Thomas sounds like one of those guys who'd say, I I don't know what that bubble is on your side, but I'll put a knife in it and we'll see what happens. He was a fatalist. He says, if we die, at least we die with Christ. And at that time, Christ had not arisen from the grave. They'd seen some miracles. They'd seen water turn to wine. But they hadn't seen the miracle of miracles. They didn't know definitively that Jesus was the Christ. And then if you go to the Last Supper, Jesus was preparing the disciples for his resurrection. And he says in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I was going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Verses 5 through 6 then go on. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, and we've all heard this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas asked a question that night that led to one of the most famous, one of the most quoted scriptures that we have. <clears throat> the question answered not just Thomas's question, or the answer answered not just Thomas's question, but it answered questions throughout history, right? Jesus proclaimed, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that question might have showed some doubt. It might have shown some doubt. It, but it, it might have been Thomas doubting what Jesus' life here on earth meant. But it also might just have shown honesty and an ability or a willingness to ask, ask a question that no one else's ego let them ask. It also might have shown that Thomas was able to ask a question that others just couldn't put into words. And that happens sometimes. I get, sometimes I, I want to ask a question, but I just can't, I can't get the words right. Um, I know it's hard to believe that I'm lost, that I have a lost for words sometimes, but sometimes I just can't, I can't, maybe it's that I can't phrase the question without being offensive. But Thomas asked that question then that we still look at. And I don't, you know, I usually forget who asked the question that led to the answer, but you sure remember the answer. And I think about question askers out there. You know, I think we've all had, when we were in school, people that asked questions, and some of them, some of them asked questions that were annoying, some of them asked obvious questions. Uh, even today, you know, at work, during meetings, people ask questions, and I just look at them like, you really don't have anything better to do today than ask that question. But we have, we have question askers here. Um, we, have a, we have a Thursday evening Bible study, and we're privileged that my son Eli and Josh back there go every single Thursday, and both of them, every Thursday night, ask the question in their own way. Eli asks his very animated questions, usually raising his hands for extra effect. And Josh, Josh asks one of those questions where he, he kind of studiously asks and looks away as if, as if he's embarrassed to ask the question. And both of them lead to discussion that we weren't going to have. And sometimes, sometimes it just takes forever. Sometimes I get home like, Eli, why did you ask that question? I didn't get to tell your, your brothers in bed tonight because you asked that question. But I'm kidding because, because those questions every Thursday, those questions keep our Bible study from turning into superficial answers and head nodding that, that, they, that otherwise they would be. And I, I'm grateful today for question askers like Josh and like Elijah and like Thomas. Finally, here we are after this first Easter, and Thomas is stubbornly refusing to believe that Jesus appeared to the disciples. And a lot of people at first, they question, why wasn't Thomas there? And I think that's completely unfair 2,000 years later to, to second guess why Thomas wasn't there. I think it really mattered. The Bible would have answered it. Some people think that Thomas had just lost faith. He wasn't hanging out with the disciples. Jesus was dead, and, and, and Thomas was on his own. And, and others, I've seen speculate that maybe Thomas... Thomas was being bold, and Thomas couldn't stand the idea of being locked in a room, afraid of what the authorities were thinking. But what we do know is that, is that Thomas wasn't there that night. If you look at verses 26 through 28, it reads, 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. It's interesting because it doesn't say that Thomas even touched it. You know, Jesus told him, Put out your hand, see put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and put it in my side. It doesn't say that Thomas necessarily did that. But Thomas did say, my Lord and my God. So a week later, they're all together again in a locked room, just like a week before. This time Thomas is there, and Jesus appears. And for the second time, notice, he says, peace at the start. And the, 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 the actual word, I guess, was shalom, which is somewhat of a greeting, but it was the same thing again. Jesus was proclaiming peace. And then Jesus turns to Thomas, and this part, it just focuses on Thomas. Jesus is speaking to Thomas, and I think Jesus is speaking to us because Thomas is representing doubters, and that's really who we are now. Jesus repeats back to Thomas just what Thomas had said that week, right? Remember, Jesus, Jesus told him, reach out your hand and put it into my side. And Thomas that week had said that he had to see his hands and to touch his side. So Jesus doesn't just show that he has his wounds. Jesus doesn't just show who he is. Jesus shows Thomas that Jesus heard Thomas when Thomas spoke to the disciples at a time when Jesus was not next to Thomas. He was not bodily in that conversation. But what Jesus was showing is that he was ever present. He was everywhere. He's omnipresent, and that is a quality of God. It's one more way that, that Jesus showed Thomas that he is God. And Thomas says the only thing he can say at that time, my Lord and my God. Thomas no longer doubts at that moment. Verse 29 goes on. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That might be one of the most underappreciated verses in our Bible, at, at least today, because it is pointed at us today. That, that verse wasn't targeted at Thomas. It wasn't targeted at anybody else in that room because they were all seeing Christ at that time. And if I were to, if I were to be fair, I've had moments in my life where I felt cheated because 2,000 years ago, these guys got to hang out with Christ. They got to see him. They could touch him. They could hear him. They saw his miracles. They followed him around. And it seems like it would be so easy to believe. I mean, clearly it wasn't because it was only a minority of the people around, only a minority of the people that even saw him that followed him. There were a hundred-some people in the room that night. Thousands, 5,000 men alone were fed by Christ. And here we're just down to triple digits in that room. But here he is, Jesus. Jesus says that we are blessed, that I am blessed. Why? Because, because we didn't see him and yet we believe. And, and I have no idea what that blessing is. Do, do I know what blessing mean, what bless means? No. But I do know that Jesus means it for me and he means it for us and he didn't mean it for Thomas. He didn't mean this blessing for Peter or James or John or Andrew or any of the disciples because they got to see him. He means it for us because we have not seen and yet have believed, Right? It also shows that Jesus knew about us. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus knew that there were going to be generations born that would not see him. And Jesus spoke to us and said, you're blessed. 
He knew that it would take a special kind of belief, and that belief is faith. The simplest, the simplest definition of faith that I've heard is believing without seeing. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, blessed are those with faith, and that's us today. I want to circle back to Thomas here for a second, because while I, I don't like speculating about why Thomas wasn't there that night or why he was called Downing Thomas, I do think that week that Thomas was in a terrible place. Um, Thomas's life had been built around Jesus Christ for a few years. If you knew Thomas, then you knew Thomas is that guy who gave up his life to follow Christ. He was a nomad. They simply traveled around, and they lived where they, where, where they were. They, they, they really didn't have their own possessions. What they had was their identity as followers of Christ. And then Jesus was crucified, and he was gone, and Thomas didn't see him. And I think, I mean, I, if I were Thomas, I'd be doubting. I would be doubting what the last three years of my life had, been, had meant, and I would doubt even more what other people thought of me, how foolish, how stupid I looked, and I really doubt what my life meant going forward, what it was all going to mean. And um, I think if, if you're old enough, you've, I think we've all had times like this. I've had times in my life where I just didn't know what was going to happen next. And what I didn't know was if the wrong thing happened, was that going to mean that everything I'd done would mean nothing? Would, would that mean that, that going forward that, that my life wasn't going to be the same, that it wasn't going to have the meaning that I wanted it to have, that I had planned? I think Thomas was there. And I think back to those times, and what I remember most was it didn't matter what time of year it was, and it didn't matter what was going on outside. It was dark. When I think about those times, I, I, I am absolutely haunted by the thought of darkness. And I think Thomas, uh, Thomas spent a week. A week is a long time to spend in darkness. I think, I think Thomas was, was in darkness that week, and then Jesus Christ showed up, and Jesus brought the light. And, and He's described throughout Scripture as the light. Jesus appears, and he shows Thomas his wounds. He erases all the doubt and all the questions, and he erases the darkness. Jesus restores Thomas's life and its meaning. And then what does Thomas do um, after that? Because we know that the disciples eventually went out, and we know that the disciples, with, with, the, with the exception of John, were all martyred. I mean, they were martyred pretty early on. Christian history teaches us that, uh, that, that Thomas went to India. And it, and it seems, uh, it is, it's not without controversy that, that, that he went to India, but it's pretty well established, and certainly India embraces that. And to this day, there are St. Thomas Christians in India. And in fact, if you remember history class from middle school or high school, uh, back in 1498, Vasco da Gama was a Portuguese sailor. And at that time, Portugal was sending out boats all over the world to, to explore, to find new trade routes, and they would always send with them Catholic priests because they would try to convert the natives that they found. And when Vasco da Gama landed in southern India, to the surprise of everyone on board, there were Christians there. And there were Christians there with ancient Christian texts. And those Christians told the Portuguese that their Christianity had been established by Thomas going there. And that is crazy. If you look at the, the trade routes of the time, it was nuts. You would either have to sail across oceans in, in boats that, that I wouldn't take out on Atwood Lake right now, or you'd have to walk through deserts. You'd have to go through hostile people. I mean, I like a road trip as much as anybody because I like to stop for barbecue. But uh, there wasn't a lot of barbecue back then. Je Jesus inspired Thomas to go to India. 
to spread his news, this, this man who's known as Doubting Thomas. If we go back to verses 30 through 31 to finish up that chapter, it reads, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's one final chapter after this in the book of John, and it, it sends, it, 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 it's essentially an epilogue, but these verses serve really as the summary of the book of John, if not all the Gospels. If you remember, John is, is the last of the four Gospels. John tells us that he wrote his book so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that is, that Jesus came to save us, and that by believing we would have life, eternal life, in his name. John summed up his book, you know, his last passage was speaking about a doubter to doubters, to today's doubters. But this particular doubter went on to spread the gospel in an almost unhuman, unbelievable way. Thomas was transformed. He was transformed by the Holy Spirit. He was transformed by Christ's wounds, and he was transformed by the reversal of his own doubts. Thomas found his meaning in the life of Jesus Christ. Just like today, we find our meaning our purpose in Jesus Christ's kingdom, in the body that is Christ, the body that is the church of Christ. In, in, in contrast to the individualism that the world teaches now, our purpose, our meaning is in the body of Christ and thus also to other members of the body of Christ, our Christian brothers and sisters. Today as we face times of doubt, times of darkness, times when we question what our lives mean, I remember Thomas. Because doubts are absolutely natural, and God has used them, and he uses doubters. Um, my, final, my final quote here is from John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, who wrote of Thomas, For by your doubting I am taught to believe, by your forked tongue that revealed the wound on the divine body that was pierced, I harvest the fruit for myself without pain. I'll close in prayer, and then if the worship team would come up. Oh, Father. Thank you this morning. Uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for what John wrote, and thank you for Thomas and his example. Thank you for loving us, for dying for us. Uh, thank you for your body in, in, in the church of Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this day, that you'd bless uh, as we finish up our, our uh, service today, and that you'd watch over us, and uh, you'd bless our afternoons, our evening together. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.